patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicate to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 92 of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm your host, Sherman Tylowski, and thank you all so much for joining us this week. As we look forward to a lot warmer weather and students finish with the school year, hope you're putting together some great plans for the upcoming season in just a few weeks. As always, make sure to subscribe to Friends and Fellow Citizens to get the latest notifications about new episodes and updates. We've got a big update next month, so make sure to check out for that. Also, be sure to subscribe to our email list to get some even more notifications. You'll get an email every week with the episode link. Very, very easy, right to your inbox. It's a really great way to also uh, keep in, um, track with the uh, different updates. Sometimes we'll have surprise uh, announcements and whatnot, so make sure to consider subscribing to our email list. That link is down in the show notes below. This week, we return to the topic of the role of the media in our civics and the state of media in our uh, political environment. And for this topic, our guest is Lee Munsell. Lee is the editor-in-chief of the nonprofit and San Antonio Report Newsroom in San Antonio, Texas. Previously, she held staff writer, reporter, and editor positions with the Dallas Morning News, Politico, The Blaze, and CNN Politics, and most recently was the editor of CNN's The Point with Chris Cizilla in Washington, D.C. For, for Perhaps some of you might have seen uh, some shows or episodes from Chris Cizilla on CNN. Uh, Munsell has a bachelor's degree in journalism and mass communication from Arizona State University where she also studied Spanish and served as editor-in-chief of the university's daily newspaper, The State Press. All right, ladies and gentlemen, well, I'm very happy to welcome Lee to our podcast. Lee, thank you so much for joining us this week. Hey, Sherman, thanks for having me. I appreciate uh, you thinking of me. This will be fun. Wonderful. Well, obviously, we got a big topic, lots of big topics to cover today. But first of all, I want to learn more about your background, really how you got started and how you received and got your passion for for journalism and the field in which you're in. So tell us a bit about your background and how you got started. Yeah. So, I mean, it was pretty simple in terms of how I first got started. Uh, I was a good writer as, as a kid and, and teenager. And that's kind of when you love to write as a kid, what do you dream of being? And for me, I, I thought about being a journalist. Um, and actually part of the fun of the story of how I became a journalist is that my parents actually met in a newsroom. Uh, they were both the editor in chief of the state press, which is the college newspaper at Arizona State University, um, which is where I ended up going to college, uh, the Cronkite School of Journalism. And so I about 20 some odd years later, uh, was also the editor in chief of the state press, uh, college newspaper. So, uh, journalism's in the blood. I love doing it. Uh, and yeah, so a little bit about my, my early career, I went to ASU and then, uh, did a bunch of different internships in newspapers, uh, worked for the Arizona Republic, the Orange County Register, 
And then my first job out of school um, was at the Dallas Morning News for a year. So I got to know Texas a little bit and then moved on to D.C. journalism, worked at Politico, uh, The Blaze and CNN most recently. And then uh, as many people experienced, the pandemic happened in 2020. And I had some time to think about what do I want to accomplish with my career? You know, what matters the most to me? And, um, you know, I thought back to my early years being being a newspaper journalist, covering local news, you know, getting to know a new city by being a reporter, driving around it, um, which I don't, I don't want to betray my age too much, but I used to print out MapQuest directions for my, my assignments when I first started out um, in, in journalism. And so, uh, yeah, I just love local news. I really care about uh, trying to help fix the business model of local news. Local uh, newsrooms are having a really hard time. Uh, figuring out how to make money and also produce news, uh, which is a difficult problem to have. And so during the pandemic, I I started talking to uh, Angie Mock, who's the publisher of the San Antonio Report, and uh, Robert Rivard, who's the founder of, of, previously it was called the Rivard Report, but now it's called the San Antonio Report, a nonprofit uh, local newsroom in San Antonio, Texas, the nation's seventh largest city, Um, it's a fairly small newsroom. We have about 21, uh, journalists and also business staff. And so, uh, I decided at the end of last year, November is when I moved out to San Antonio and I'm the new editor in chief of the San Antonio report. I'm really glad to be here. It's a lot of fun already. Well, first of all, congratulations on your new position. <laughs> and I know that you're going to do a lot of great things. And uh, by the way, you told uh, us about that story of how your parents met. I'm sure Walter Cronkite would have loved to hear that story. <laughs> and uh, certainly you, I think, embody a lot of what I think people want from journalists. And certainly uh, with with the name Walter Cronkite, you, can't, you just can't go wrong with that. And that's kind of a big a big tall standard that I I hope that a lot of people uh, can follow as well. Now, uh, going back into a bit about your experiences when you kind of got into the news industry, and uh, by uh, by the way, uh, I uh, I remember MapQuest, so you know, that's, <laughs> okay, that, yes, <laughs> that makes me feel better. <laughs> um, and uh, anyway, I I want to ask about really about the digital age side of things because. It seems like that really has it's ruptured a lot of things, but in particular journalism. I thought I thought it's always been very interesting. So, what is it about that digital age? Did you really start to realize that there was something more to it, and you wanted to get yourself active on researching more about the local news industry and the impact it has on the way we consume information nowadays? Yeah. I mean, I think that last thing you said is exactly it, right? The way that we consume information, the way that we consume news has completely changed with the internet. Um, You know, back in the day, you would put a newspaper together. It's not even, it's not even that long ago back in the day, by the way, but you put, you put together uh, the daily newspaper and it would come out in the morning. Sometimes there was an evening edition of, of newspapers, but in general, there was kind of a publishing schedule that, um, you know, you could expect your audience to be there, you know, in the mornings when you put the newspaper out. Um, and obviously when the, when the internet came around, number one, uh, basically that print display ad that used to cost a lot of money and be right next to the story that you produced in your newspaper, 
no longer was worth as much because advertising on the internet is was like what pennies on the dollar for what you could make for a display ad, um, as well as classifieds, which were a huge moneymaker for newspapers um, for years. You know, now, now there's Craigslist. Now there's any number of ways, Facebook Marketplace, to, to sell something for free on the internet. And so um, a lot of the services that you expected in your local newspaper, or you would, you know, call and put an ad out if you were trying to rent a room or whatever else, all of that stuff uh, now exists on the internet, as well as the audience's um, appetite for news is immediate, you know, and um, I'm fortunate in that I am like a millennial, I'm kind of, kind of an older millennial, but I was right on the cusp of, you know, grew up with computers, but didn't grow up with social media the same way um, it exists now for, for kids. Right. It, and it's such a um, just scary thought to think that, you know, the, the kids that we know and love are, are going to grow up in a world where they have access to social media all the time. And so um, anyway, I, I've, I've kind of gone around in circles, but what I'm trying to say is the audience habit for news has completely changed and the competition, you know, it's not just the rival newspaper across town, it, the competition for uh, local journalists as well as national outlets is anything people could be doing with their time on the internet that's not interacting with your content, right? Like th there's just a plethora of other options for people um, to be spending their time on the internet doing other stuff. You know, they could be on HBO Max, they could be clicking around Reddit, they could be doing anything. And so, um, the dual role of news to both entertain and inform has never been more important because if you don't think about how to reach an audience, um, and actually provide the audience with what they need, um, in terms of, you know, actually teaching them something about the world around them or the community around them, but also, um, if they're not interested in what you've produced, you've pr produced a research paper. And so, uh, there's, a dual role and a dual requirement, I think, especially for, um, for journalists to create content that is reliable, informative, well-reported, but that also is interesting and, and gets the audience's attention. Um, and I can talk a lot more about that. I, I think at this point in, you know, the era of the internet, the audience is too smart for clickbait. So, so I'm not saying just, you know, say the most salacious you, thing you can say to get attention, but you have to be thinking about how to connect the audience to the content you've created, or you've only done half your job. Really interesting. And especially when you mentioned that kind of that salacious content or the, or something that feels like a lot of people have that perception about a lot of different individuals, or particularly those in the media industry. I'm not trying to paint a blanket picture, uh, but do you feel like too often there's 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 people in various different capacities in the media industry go, go really simply go too far and don't check that box of informing? Clearly, there's there's a money aspect too, right? You, one has to make money, but do you think it's gone too far in the sense that people have had such a negative perception that? The cons that the consumption of news or of information really has become so decentralized that people are just taking information from wherever wherever they want to get it. Yeah, that's a tough question. I I do think that you're right in a couple different ways. In that, um, because of the difficulty of reaching a digital audience, you know, we found 
and I say we just to mean people who spend their time thinking about content on the internet, like we found a couple things that work. They don't always work uh, and they, you know, have diminishing returns on some of them. Right. So um, one time I saw a meme on the internet that I thought was really telling. And it was like this picture of um, a pizza box and it had like a little cellophane triangle uh, in the pizza box. And in, and in that cellophane triangle, you could see three pepperonis. And then when you open the pizza box, the rest of the pizza is all cheese. There's only those three pepperonis showing in the cellophane. Uh, and I use that as an example for headlines, right? Sometimes, sometimes our headlines have all the good stuff in them. And when you get into the rest of the story, you realize that it's been overblown, right? Like the story didn't deliver on uh, what the audience thought they were going to get when they read the headline. Um, in some ways, you should be putting the good stuff in the headline. In other ways, you shouldn't oversell, right? Because if you're dishonest with your digital audience, your digital audience will not trust you again the next time, right? And so we're making trade-offs sometimes we, again, the, the capital we media. Uh, and I, I think uh, another piece of what you were saying earlier about, you know, who can you trust in this moment on the internet? Um, it's really, really important, but I would also say it's easy to blame the media for, and again, the media, but it's easy to blame the media for uh, misinformation or even uh as you were saying, like the more salacious uh, coverage. But in a lot of cases, um, unfortunately, uh, content producers have been taught to give the audience what they want. And so people say, you know, I don't want a story that that's overblown or over the top, or, you know, I, I would never read the Daily Mail online, right? But you do, like the data shows you do. Or like, I would never watch a uh, talking head show where people are yelling at each other across across a desk on cable news. Well, the data shows you will. That is what people watch uh, comparatively to more informative content. And so, um, yeah, I, th I think it's an important question because who who is the person deciding what's too far? Like, like what what are ethics at this point in, in media? And I think that there's um, a check that exists within newsrooms, right? And especially within local newsrooms to uh, be responsible and honest again, because there is uh, a lot of uh, within a local community, there's a lot of uh, checks on the work you're doing. If you're wrong about a story in a local news context, you hear about it and you hear about it a bunch of times. So there are some checks and balances that exist uh, within a local news entity. And some of that stuff exists nationally as well. Um, but there also is a business need to cover news fairly accurately and responsibly, because again, you'll lose your audience if you can't be trusted. And um, for better or worse, you know, the gatekeepers of information now are all of us because the audience decides who they trust and they'll continue to tune back in based on that trust. And so um, it's a huge responsibility for news outlets to be worthy of that trust and be worthy of the time that people are willing to spend with the stories, um, the articles, the photos you know, that we're producing. Indeed. It sounds like, you know, there's the saying, the customer's always right. And in this, in this case, it kind of seems like people are, are saying, oh, well, the customer should be always be right. But then they kind of in, indirectly kind of blame the customer or, or at least should look at the customer themselves and say, maybe I should be the one rethinking how I 
consume media or how I consume information. And I, I also kind of want to ask you about the other part too, which is really how information is disseminated to media, because we see oftentimes, and you've obviously been in this space yourself with being in Politico, really about how politicians and lawmakers use social media to disseminate information. How much of a factor does the behavior of an elected official on media, social media, cable news, whatnot, affect the way or the abilities for the media industry to adapt and become a better place for information dissemination? Yeah, well, it's important to remember that the role of a journalist um, has no more legal protections than any average citizen, right? Like, journalists aren't supposed to have any sort of, you know, access beyond the ability to spend their days every day trying to gather information, learn more things, and then report that to an audience, right? So basically a journalist is a regular person just with a lot more time to spend thinking about how do we find out more about what's going on in the news. And so uh, I think that's really important to remember, right? Because journalism is one of the things that protects democracy. And and it's good for us to remember because I think sometimes um, journalists can be really excited by how many people follow them on Twitter and whether they're getting retweets from important, you know, players in politics or whatever else. And, and that can be distracting from the role it, because what we're supposed to be is, um, you know, someone who's spending their time finding out information that would make their audiences lives better, help their audience understand more about the world around them. Like that, that's our function overall. Um, obviously, you know, when people are involved in anything like this, uh, it's easy to forget that role. And so I think that that has happened, uh, to some extent in Washington, I think there's kind of a, um, just natural instinct among organizations as they compete with each other to try and get, you know, the biggest, best scoop on, you know, something that actually doesn't matter that much. Or sometimes the stories about especially politics get told in a way um, that's about the horse race, that's about, you know, who's up and who's down. And in some ways, if the audience is learning from that, there's nothing wrong with you know, horse race coverage necessarily. But um, I do think that we need to remember that every time a policy gets passed in Washington or statewide, or in our case, by the city council um, or by, you know, the Bear County Commissioner's Court, there are real people whose lives are affected. And um, it's the job of journalists, I believe, to go find those people and tell their stories, not just the stories of people in power. And so, Sometimes we're really successful at that um, on the local level and on the national level, and sometimes we fall short. But um, I think it's important that we get, uh, you know, told when we're falling short because I hope it makes us better. And so I think it's important also within journalism not to be um, circling the wagons, like trying to protect ourselves and, you know, trying to not ever take incoming uh, from people who are criticizing our work. Uh, I think that we need to be open to that criticism because we can get better. Absolutely. No, that's great. And uh, <clears throat> I just thought of one question. This kind of goes back to Washington. Maybe maybe that's just, the, that's just who I am. I'm always someone who 
things. I, I travel back to, to Washington and then back to wherever I am, you know? Um, yeah. but, uh, well, and Washington is inherently newsworthy, which is why we're interested in it. And there's nothing wrong with the audience wanting to learn about politics. It's, it's great that people care about our politics. And so, yeah, I completely agree with you that it's okay to like politics. I did it for 10 years. So I'm a little <laughs> bit like yeah, ready to do more local news, but Hey, all politics is local. All politics is political. So it's all the same thing. Yeah, exactly. And, and that kind of may lead to one question. I don't, this is just a question that really popped up in my mind, but I, I thought about how there's kind of a element of for lack of a better term, bureaucracy when it comes to journalism. And I'm not, and I'm not talking about the actual media of companies or Organizations. I'm really talking about how information is disseminated from the policymaker to the media. And one example is the, I, I would say, the rise in the profile of the press secretary of the White House. Um, it used to be that the president, or at least very at the very minimum, the an advisor to the president would often be the person, the go-to person to explain policy. But it seems like in, with the past few decades, I, I can't remember the exact year when the press secretary first became a position. Uh, but um, it seems like that has kind of created a sense like, well, okay, I'm seeing the press secretary come and speak for the president, but why isn't the president maybe addressing these questions by himself? Or why isn't this lawmaker such and such is uh, speaking for himself? Um, I've, I'm, I'm concerned that there's sometimes there's a bit of a barrier to, it kind of goes back to that perception issue where maybe a lot of people think, well, why aren't you talking to the congressman and the senator, not saying that, I mean, obviously journalists do approach members of Congress, but it seems like there's, I've seen myself where there's a lot of comms people, there's a lot of people, and I don't deny that the job is very tough. There could be maybe some kind of recognition that maybe we need to hear, maybe we need a bit more of a challenge to the actual people who make the policies or um, people who can, you know, be, be a bit more in the spotlight when it comes to certain questions if that if that if that makes sense it's kind of a broad question yeah i get what you're saying it's kind of a commentary on history of of the press secretary which i am not a historian but yeah you you actually you made me look it up like when was the first um press secretary established and it was actually 1929 which i not i would not have thought um that it it was that long ago or at least according to wikipedia you know i i'm not gonna i didn't fully research that i just looked it up really quickly um but i do think and this could be wrong but i think it was post the nixon presidency that that it really became um much more involved in kind of the day-to-day i would imagine you know the, the same thing we're talking about with a digital audience changing things um for uh journalism overall like when television came on the scene, that completely changed things in terms of telling the story of a presidency uh, to the country. And so I see what you're saying. I think that uh, at least in my experience in national media, there's a lot of access, especially to members of Congress. Um, You know, there are press scrums in the hallways of the Senate and the House where members of Congress are going to votes. Like, they get surrounded by journalists to ask them questions. Um, and I understand what you're saying about the press secretary too, but it's really important that the press secretary answers questions on behalf of the administration, as well as the president does, you know, press conferences or public appearances. All those things are important for transparency. And so um, I get what you're saying that, you know, principals need to be answering questions and they do, but I don't know that the comms infrastructure is the problem so much as just, you know, a natural next step in 
the audience's interest in finding out more from these people about the politics that affect their lives. So I think in some ways it's the system working as it should, but I do think also that the, um, there is a lot of pressure when public officials are not doing appearances or they're not answering questions from the press. Um, you know, the press will write about that. They'll talk about how many days it's been since the president's last public appearance. And, and so, um, yeah, I, I think there are some good checks that exist, but in general, a daily press briefing, uh, gives us more information, not less from, from an administration. Yes, I, I've definitely seen those those countdowns, and I, I don't know who's in charge of those countdowns. Maybe mm-hmm. they have some kind of counter or or something. But uh, anyway, <laughs> um, no, I, I the graphics department, yeah, graf- graphics department, exactly, or an intern. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the, the role of interns are generally speaking in the media. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, let's move on a little bit to another area, and this is something that I, th- I thought was very interesting on your website. You, you you spoke a little bit about how you're interested in media ethics and. And the role it has in contemporary times, we touched upon that a little bit about the importance of accuracy and all that. But uh, could you expand a little bit more on um, what your what your areas of interest are when it comes to media ethics and how that kind of plays into this uh, this evolution of news in the digital age? I've always loved media ethics. It was one of my favorite classes at, at Arizona State. It was my uh, media ethics class that I took with Tim McGuire, who um, he was a longtime uh, editor of the Star Tribune and, and just a great, great journalist. So I love that class, and I would have liked it anyway. Um, but I, I think media ethics and media law, which I'm not a lawyer. I, I have a bunch of siblings who are lawyers, so they're they're the experts. But um, I do really like this stuff because I think it's it's interesting, right? Like what I told you earlier about how journalists don't have any legal protections beyond what the average citizen in the United States has. And that's a really beautiful thing. And, and so um, in terms of ethics, I think, uh, you know, the standard that we should get held to as people who um, are gathering and disseminating information to our communities, um, should be high. And so, uh, some organizations have set up, uh, ways to help them be ethical. Like, uh, a lot of big newspapers will have what's called an ombudsman, which, um, basically that person doesn't answer to the same editorial structure as, as the newspaper or news outlet. Um, they answer to the people, right? So like if, if readers, don't feel like a story has been fair. The ombudsman doesn't have to defend, you know, the newspaper or, or the, um, the content creator, they have to defend the needs of, of people as, as they've responded. And so I think that that can be a good check, you know, in a small organization, like, like my uh, local newsroom in San Antonio, you know, we don't, we don't have a position like that, but um, I spend a lot of my time, listening to what our readers and our audience have to say, you know, I read the comments, they say, don't read the comments. I think you have the luxury of not reading the comments at a place like CNN. Um, but at the San Antonio report, we absolutely, every person that writes in is our neighbor, our audience member. And, and, you know, it should be the case. I think that all news outlets pay that level of attention to, um, you know, the audience that they're serving. But, um, sometimes a place like you know, 
CNN or Politico, you're just getting attacked on the internet a lot. And some of it's fair and some of it's bad faith um, arguments. But in the case of local news, I think that there's really a beauty to the fact that um, the journalists that are covering their own communities have skin in the game. You know, it's their roads, it's their parks, it's their, um, you know, noise ordinances, it's their energy bills. You know, so the stories that we're covering are about us too, in a way. Um, and so I would hope that that makes us better at our jobs, not worse, but believe me, we'll hear from the community if that's not true. Um, and so, you know, I, I've talked a little bit about this, but I think that it just speaks to the importance of local news, like the, the future of what journalism looks like in our, um, in our nation really, really need strong local newsrooms because if nobody is holding up a light to, you know, city council meetings or commissioner's court or, um, you know, businesses, if if there are business practices that are happening in a local context that are unfair or, you know, are preying upon um, people who don't have the power to fight back, it is a responsibility of journalists, I think, um, to find those stories and write those stories. But um, the truth, you know, not just, uh, a crusade or, or, you know, what somebody thinks is, is a skewed perspective on what the story actually is. It's always, 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 um, when we're talking about ethics, right. Um, what is truthful and what is necessary. Like we're producing the stories about our community that are truthful and that are necessary. You know, journalistic principles include fairness. They include, um, you know, taking the time to actually understand context and bring that into your story. Because again, you can write a story that every word of it is true, but if you haven't used the, you know, context that's needed to actually explain why it matters and and why your audience should care, again, you know, it it could be false. It's, if it's not in context, every word could be true. But, um, so when you talk about either, uh, bias or ways that journalists miss the mark. Like sometimes it's in the words in the story. Sometimes it's in the stories that are, you know, that, that we choose to cover. That's sometimes where we miss the mark. And so um, in terms of who is responsible, um, the answer is, I mean, I hold myself very, very responsible to be ethical and um, truthful in, in the news that we produce. And, and all the rest of my newsroom is very, very, very helpful in support of that goal. Um, our managing editor, Wendy Cook, is just absolutely wonderful and a stickler for facts, you know, knowing um, the full context and making sure that we have it all right. Um, and this is part of my experience doing political news, but uh, sometimes even if you know, okay, we want to write this story. We we have enough information here. We want to write this story. You still have to have it completely sewed up. Like any possible hole in a story, you have to think about that ahead of time and make sure you, that you've answered that question. And so like, yes, that's, you know, protecting um, the newsroom from, from criticism, but it also is helping the audience, right? So like if you're reading through a story as an editor and the first thing you think is, well, I have this question. Has this ever happened before? Why does this matter? Um, you know, that's helping the audience experience be better because the audience is going to get to that point in the story and say, well, has this ever happened before? How did it turn out? Right. So like all of these things, when it comes to ethics, I think also have a business need because you're not going to be serving the audience 
or ultimately, you know, successful from a business standpoint, if you're not thinking about the audience experience and the questions they would have and helping them actually understand the content you're producing. Um, again, it's, it's a big job, but it's, it's a really fun one. And so journalism is great. Um, and I really, really hope that we're doing the work now. You know, the San Antonio report is a nonprofit newsroom. I was never sure that the nonprofit news model would work, but, um, it's really smart the way it's set up, right? We don't have a paywall. It's free and accessible accessible to anyone. Um, you can subscribe and give us, you know, five bucks, 10 bucks a month to, to get our newsletters. If you want, you can get our newsletters for free if you want to, like, we want to make sure everybody has access to the stories that we're producing about our community. I think a big part of my job is articulating to our community and communities, you know, around the nation that there is a very real, um, value to local news. It is worth something to a community to have um, robust and healthy newsrooms that are spending their time looking for waste, fraud, and abuse. And also, you know, the good stuff about a community. I think you can spend all of your days writing crime stories and, you know, trying to get all those clicks, but you're not telling the truthful story about your community. Like um, a place like San Antonio is um, an incredible community. There's so much good stuff happening here and there's crime, but guess what? Like, you know, the crime is not out of line with any other major city and you wouldn't know that necessarily. Thankfully in a local community, even though sometimes it causes me headaches, um, there's, uh, community members who care just as much as we do about us getting things right. And so, um, that just shows how engaged our audience is, but also, um, I think it keeps us on our toes in a really good way. And so I really, appreciate that level of kind of instant feedback that happens within community and local news. I love hearing that, you know, your story about how you got engaged in this and it really sounds like, you know, the audience so well, you know, I, I mentioned earlier about a story about Costco, and this is not paid for by Costco by any means. Um, but uh, um, it's what, what I love about Costco as an example is that they really know their customers very well. I think that's just the main point. Whether or not people shop there, uh, there's a reason why they only have what two, three thousand items at the store. I kind of thought of that a little bit, you know, kind of like given the fact that you guys are a tight, more tight knit, and that you understand. You read those comments, you see what people are saying. In your view, what are the threats and opportunities that lie on the horizon for local media outlets like yours? Yeah, well, I think um, local newsrooms can be helpful in this period of time, helping reintroduce people to people within community, right? Like, uh, we've come out of, you know, come out of it. It's, it's going to be an ongoing process, but um, we've come out of the worst of the pandemic and um, there's a lot of mistrust of our neighbor. And uh, when we look at, you know, well, what if local news didn't exist? What if local newsrooms all fell apart, couldn't make money, couldn't make it work? What would happen? Well, people would be getting their news as some of them are now on Nextdoor or Facebook or Twitter. And imagine, you know, if if the place they're getting your local news is Nextdoor, what a sad and scary world that we live in. And so um, in terms of threats, to um, local news. I think the biggest one is misinformation. Um, the way that information spreads on the internet, unfortunately, uh, naturally, the internet rewards 
the fantastical and sometimes the unbelievable, right? Like stuff that goes viral and takes off. A lot of times you should be suspicious of it because there's usually something a little bit wrong with it, which is why it's spreading so fast, um, which is unfortunate. Like misinformation is is really, really scary. Um, and, you know, you can rebut a story that now has gone viral and, and spread this min- misinformation to so many people. But it, it just, you know, again, virality, the way that that works on the internet, you're going to reach just a fraction of the people that got reached by the first story in the first place. Um, so I don't really know what to tell you the answer is on this, but I do think that when it comes to combating misinformation within local communities, all we can do is tell the truth as loudly and as often as we can. And so, um, again, holding on to that as kind of our North Star for what are we trying to accomplish here. Um, and sure, sometimes that looks like a fact check or an explainer. I think explainer content is incredibly valuable in this moment on the internet because, like, right, you can write a story about um, here's what uh, – you know, COVID testing is happening this way in San Antonio, or they've, they've stopped doing COVID testing in the same way in San Antonio, but like you can do the news story, right. On changes in testing. And you reach some audience with that. But if you have a story that's a little bit more evergreen, maybe can last a week on the site, maybe can last two weeks that says like, here's everything you need to know about getting your COVID vaccine in San Antonio. Right. And a story like that, I think has the potential to reach more audience. So that's good. We're always trying to reach audience, but also that serves the audience. Then they actually get all their questions answered about something that's important to their ability to exist within their community. And so um, anyway, when we're talking about this moment in time, I think that uh, events are a slam dunk opportunity for local news to be, um, you know, put newsmakers on a panel together and make them talk about, you know, the bond campaign or where the money's going to go, why it matters, ARPA funds, you know, that came from the federal government into local communities, um, you know, actually ask people those questions at events. Um, I think that's that's something that local news outlets can be really, really instrumental in is kind of um, this moment in time. We need to learn how to, you know, gather again, communicate again, you know, have conversations across communities again. And so I really hope that our newsroom and other local newsrooms can be helpful in that process because like, gosh, it was so, I I don't know if you remember what it was like during the early days of the pandemic, you were so mistrustful of people around you. Like, could this person get me sick? Could this person like kill my grandma, right? Like, like, remember how, how scary it was. And it's a very human thing for us to have experienced that, but we all went through it together. And now we are desperate for community. Like we're desperate to gather back again, um, in community. And, you know, there's going to be growing pains in that there's going to be difficult conversations that are had. And I hope that we remember again, how to see eye to eye. Um, because again, in a local community, everybody has skin in the game, right? And you may disagree on ways to get there. And this is true about, about national politics too, but you may disagree about ways to get there, but we can all agree that something needs to get done. And so hopefully getting people together to have those conversations, remind us how to communicate again without, you know, firing off an angry comment and, and, you know, going off to whatever else you're going to do that day. But, uh, disinformation spreads on the internet all the time. And so what can we do to help information that's truthful and necessary spread? Uh, that's, that's a really, really important point you made about the communication aspect. Um, 
one thing I wanted to say is it, it seems like also misinformation, disinformation, in a way, in some ways, is trying to keep people on screens. You know, trying mm-hmm. to be be the one, uh, trying to get people to be the next one to consume. Yeah. That viral video, you know how what however amazing it is. I've never made a viral video, and mm-hmm. some I feel like it's just some things. Some things go viral because you know some things are just that great, you know. <laughs> but then there's then there's the viral stuff that no, maybe not so great. One thing I wanted also ask you about, which is um, I, I was thinking a lot about the the kids nowadays who a lot of them have not had that in-person interaction uh, in schools and all. It's very, very sad. I mean, you you were talking about those early days when people weren't able to, to communicate, weren't able to even see each other in person or just, just kind of had that kind of fear aspect to it. Does the San Antonio report have any plans or vision to get engaged with local schools and educational institutions? And do you think that this is something maybe feasible with local media outlets across the country? Yeah, so um, we have an excellent education reporter, Brooke Crum, um, at the San Antonio Report, and she's just done a a great job of writing about learning loss and um, a lot of the, basically, the moment that we're in in education. Um, We also, at the San Antonio Report, we're putting on an education forum in April, which is an annual event that we do, but I think takes on new meaning and new importance um, in this moment, again, talking about, you know, schools have been back here in San Antonio for about a uh, year, year and a half. I, I mean, they didn't stay out that long, but there was, you know, really significant learning loss that happened um, when students were not in school every day or, you know, they they did an incredible job in the city of San Antonio of getting um, Internet access at, in for those Zoom classes. Right. Uh, so they did a really great job of making sure that kids were still able to attend classes, um, but there has been significant learning loss uh, that's followed. And so um, we're trying to write, you know, great stories about that issue, trying to help um, understand basically what the impacts are going to be on the educational system for years to come. Uh, I would hope, and I think we're starting to see this, that um, kids and people in general are really resilient, right? Like as we start to gather again, a lot of the damage that was done from isolation, I hope will be undone quickly. Um, And, you know, especially with kids, I hope that how quickly they're able to learn already um, will just get supercharged by, by that, um, you know, community aspect of being back in classrooms. And so um, we're, we're seeing and we're writing about it and we're going to keep writing about it. But yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I worry about kids um, even beyond the COVID pandemic, but I worry about kids and the way that they experience the world on the internet. Like there's just a big story out today about, um, you know, high depression rates among, um, I think it was Gen Z and, and below. I don't, I don't think it was just Gen Z, right? Cause we're, we're starting to uh, do studies about different generations. And we realize, you know, there's a bunch of kids out there that, that are even younger and are already experiencing what it's like to be on the internet, you know, day in, day out. And so, um, yeah, that, that worries me because, um, if you see yourself through the lens of others, you're not going to have the right view of yourself, you know, and, and it's just getting philosophical real quick, but that that's what I worry about um, for our kids, because I think that uh, it's really a formative time. And if you spend it on the internet, it, it just has a lot of negative potential impacts. And so um, trying to, again, tell the truth 
as, as loudly and as often as we can is the role of a local newsroom in, in that dynamic. Very, very important. And I hope that, you know, you may, uh, organizations, media organizations can maybe do something about it. Maybe partner with various different nonprofits or with, with governments, just throw an, an idea out there. One thing though, and that I, we, I know we touched upon modern technologies or new technologies and, Excuse me if I sound like a bit of a Luddite here, but uh, if we were to go maybe a bit towards the time of Walter Cronkite here, and and I don't think you mind anyway, but uh, if we were to go well, back he, towards- he was a, a radio guy to some extent for, for a while, right? So what you're doing is a little bit- a little bit analog right now. So <laughs> you could have had a great podcast. I, w- I would have, I would have <laughs> taken a listen to that. Right. Right. <laughs> but uh, if we were to go a bit towards the old, kind of the older days of, of journalism, one thing that I think is going to be a bit of an issue is really when, when you have more sophisticated technology, like deep fakes, for example, um, I'm, I'm concerned about the ability for even just a video to uh, uh, for video to be able to explain the truth you know you mentioned a lot of times of that importance of of speaking objective truths and and be able to be accurate on news stories when that kind of tool gets more mainstream though uh, that's something that i'm very concerned about and i'd kind of like to ask about your thoughts about how journalism is going to navigate through these new technologies um maybe without having the use of 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 something like um, like digital video, I'm, I, I, it sounds crazy. Maybe maybe, maybe I'm crazy, but um, I've I maybe I see some kind of not all the time, but some kind of especially for very sensitive information, um, some kind of return to videotapes because when you have the actual videotape, you have the actual evidence from something without it being edited, without or at least very very little possibility being edited that kind of seems a bit more credible than maybe something that someone could have just used deep fakes or something, something, you know, to create an artificial video. Do you see a bit of a rupture on the use of old technology instead of using new technology to be able to present information again that is credible and oftentimes perhaps a bit more accurate than before? Yeah, well, that's, a huge topic and I have a lot of thoughts on it. Um, one of the, one of the things I will say is that we see in, uh, particularly viral moments or big news moments, right? We see opportunists, as you mentioned, um, try to jump on, you know, the virality to gain, you know, exposure or access or whatever else they're trying to do. I don't always know what they're going for, but therefore spreading, you know, false videos or videos. Um, you, you know, you see it in, uh, certainly with the, the war in Ukraine and, and Russia, there's been a lot of videos that have spread that have not been actually from this war. They've been from other, uh, situations or there's like, you know, videos of, or they're trying to say it's Zelensky singing, but it's not actually him. It's someone who looks like him. Right. And, and it's trading on that desire of people to spread something that confirms a narrative that they're trying to agree with. Right. So, um, what I would say about that is for journalists and for regular people, like your amplification is not neutral. Like you have a responsibility for what you amplify. And so there are great organizations working on this, including like the News Literacy Project um, and others that have you just take that quick little second to say like, 
is this true before I retweet it, before I text it to someone? You know, spend that little bit of time, if you can, to figure out if the information that you're amplifying is actually reliable, you know, sourced information, or is it somebody trying to trade on the situation, or is it just someone accidentally, you know, spreading information that's not true, like disinformation and misinformation, both of those things um, are very, very present in big news moments. But I would just... Um, impress upon journalists and especially and just regular people because we're all journalists in, in a breaking news moment. You know, this moment in terms of technology, uh, when we talk about deep fakes um, and and other, I mean, who even knows what the the next technologies to um, spread information that's false will be. I truly hope beyond the personal responsibility for what you amplify that the technology safeguarding us against, you know, malicious intents to use technology will um, keep up at the same pace, right? Like the ability to recognize a deep fake or a video that's been manipulated. I hope that there will be um, technological checks on technological advances as we move into, you know, this new news moment. But uh, we'll see. I, you know, it, again, at the very least, be thoughtful about the information that you spread at the very least. And certainly news outlets need to be on that same page because for us, it's our business not to spread false information. But for regular people, for people who just, you know, dabble in citizen journalism, um, they it's their business to be responsible and spread information that's only true. You know, as much as I love Twitter, I, I really enjoy it. A lot of journalists enjoy it. Um, keeping in mind the limitations of the platform, I think, is part of our role, too. It is our role to be contributing to better conversations across all platforms. And so we can't just wash our hands of like, well, we don't really like that one. And so everybody's, you know, spreading false information about our city on on Twitter or, you know, on Nextdoor. We'll just ignore it because that's not, you know, on our side, everything is true. Well, like this moment that we live in, um, where people get their information is, is a bunch of different sources. And so, but I think the challenge facing, um, you know, gatekeepers of information, which can be citizen journalists, it can be local newsrooms, it can be national newsrooms, um, in this moment are going to be bigger than we've ever faced before. And I'm not certain that we've done a great job of facing them so far. We need to look the challenge in the face and see it for what it is, and then try to step up to the moment. Absolutely. I mean, I, I think, uh, Lee, what you said about that personal responsibility aspect, I've, uh, that was music to my ears and maybe to a lot of people as well, because you, it, it seems like we've really lost that kind of culture, you know, and I don't want to judge one person or another right now, but I'm just saying that there's definitely people who either have never learned that or just refuse to, to kind of acknowledge it. Uh, I will say though, if someone were to, create a deep fake of me singing that's actually pretty good for me because that'll make up for my bad <laughs> singing ability so um <laughs> I, I, there you go uh, I'll, I'll even reward that person just for the just for the art and the creativity um because let's let's face yeah. let's face it when you when you have a singing ability you know i i that's that's why the confines can only be in the shower or something it can't be outside even the, even that but anyway <laughs> there you go well there's probably enough videos of me talking about the news on the internet that i'm sure you could make me say all sorts of things i hope i hope no one ever does <laughs> but hopefully again i hope the gatekeeping technology will keep pace with malicious technology um, and help us sort 
you know, fact from, from fiction in those moments. Exactly. Texas itself is a, is, it was a frontier when it became a state. And so any, anything, any ideas or any plans that you have on, on, uh, on how, how you want to continue your career and to really elevate that, uh, for, for, especially for, for those future generations of, of journalists out there. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, 10 years ago was the time, but now is the time, you know, failing that because I'm not sure that we got it right 10 years ago, but now is the time to figure out what the future of journalism looks like um, and what the future of local newsrooms looks like. And I hope that it looks like strong, healthy local newsrooms, you know, not newsrooms that are laying off staff over and over again, not newsrooms that are, um, you know, just doing the easy thing, you know, covering crime, trying to, trying to write whatever's going to, going to sell. Right. But, but I hope, I hope that what we build are strong, healthy local newsrooms. And I hope that a rising tide um, of desire for reliable, informative local news will lift all boats, right? Like nonprofits and for-profits in, in local news. Um, because I really think that overall, more than anything, what we need is a renaissance in people's understanding and appreciation for local news. And once people remember you know, that this is something I need in my society. This is something that I want in my community. I want reporters spending their time asking tough questions of the press secretary, of the mayor, you know, of the people who are running in my congressional district. That's what I want. And what is that worth to me? You know, I pay for Netflix every month. Can I put what what I pay for Netflix into my local newsroom, whether it's a nonprofit um, or could I subscribe to my local newspaper, whether if it's a for-profit, right? And I think it's really important that we don't see local newsrooms as charity, even with, you know, the nonprofit model, which I think is a very smart model, right? And it's not just asking for donations, it's using grant money. Um, It's, you know, we still have advertisements on our site, so we still make money through through ads. Um, It's it's a multi-pronged approach to existence in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, because you see how many newsrooms this country has lost in local communities. There are news deserts all across this country. And um, it is absolutely a travesty. So I hope that the nonprofit model, what we're building in San Antonio, what similar newsrooms like it are building, you know, the Texas Tribune is a great one up the road in Austin. There there are a lot of great nonprofits and you can see which ones um, are in your local community. But I hope that we'll see more sprouting up because there's such a need for healthy local newsrooms, you know, journalists that are gainfully employed and and not scared about losing their jobs next week. And and so my dream would be that um, this is a more informed country in 10, 15, 20 years and that the newsrooms that exist now are just the beginning of what's going to exist in the future. Very well said. Uh, I was thinking of that Thomas Jefferson quote about an informed citizenry, and um, I think he he might might have something to say. And uh, he had his own. I'm not going to comment on his disputes with the media. That's kind of another element he's got to deal with. Apparently, it, it's it seems like even though he had those troubles and whatnot, but I feel like he still had some kind of glimmer of hope of people being able to to have that access for information all that. Oh, I was just going to say, I wonder what the founding fathers would think of this moment in news, 
right? Like would uh, Thomas Jefferson have a sub stack or, you know, would, would George Washington, would he just be trying to, trying to burn it all down metaphorically? Like what would it look like? Part of what I was so excited about with the San Antonio report is that it is a growing newsroom. I came to a growing city to lead a growing newsroom. And I think that we're just so well positioned to, um, be important to helping this city, um, continue to grow and, and, you know, writing the stories that are important to, to our community. And, and I think that hopefully that exists uh, across the nation. I know there's a lot of people doing the same hard work in cities all around the U S and I hope that there will just be more and more, including national journalists. I hope national journalists see the importance of local news, um, and make a concerted effort to be part of it because, you know, we could all chase the same story on Capitol Hill, or we could try to make our communities more informed. And and sometimes it's okay to do both. Um, but I do think there's a lot of uh, need for journalists to to sow into their communities because their communities, again, really need them. Exactly. Very important, especially if I think it's it'll be a good idea to see more journalists kind of even if it's a one day swap, you know, like a swapping roles or something. I think that'd be really interesting to to see there. Uh, Well, our final part of our discussion, Lee, is really just kind of wrapping it all up and really tying. I mean, we mentioned Jefferson a little bit, uh, but he's not going to get all the attention today, unfortunately, or really as as much attention as Washington because the podcast is named after Washington's farewell address his work here. But uh, if, if you can pick one of those six values that I often outline and really try to tie in what one value or multiple values do you think or principles do you think really tie in with with what our conversation has been and really the things that you're you're trying to do in your capacity and really to that field of of journalism Uh, at least the the world of journalism that we want to create uh, as parts of it that we want to restore as well of the ones that that you identified from Washington's address, I, I would say that civility is the one that stuck out to me. Um, again, you know, helping foster and create dialogue within community, which I hope will lead to a better understanding of each other and more civility and discourse. Um, but overall, you know, I think what we do journalistically, especially on a local level and in general, it just dovetails so well with democracy, the concepts like that. This is what we're here for is to help, um, you know, the citizens of this country be uh, better informed and able to participate in uh, their local governments as well as their national government, connect people to each other within community. And and I think all of these things are very much things um, that are in line with what uh, President Washington was talking about in his farewell address. And I think he warned a lot about, you know, the breakdown of, of this system, this, this structure that's been built. Like, you know, I think he understood that we are good at dividing ourselves. We're not as good at uniting ourselves. And so I hope that local news outlets can be helpful in that process, reminding us, you know, what we have in common and what we have to work for. Um, and I hope that we can be a small part of that. Excellent. Um, I think that's a great, great point, and um, it's it's true that we we do have a lot of work ahead of us. But I, I'm re- I'm really confidently before we wrap up, I'm confident that 
people like yourself are, are really going to be at the forefront of this, um, you know, leading not just your organization, but I think it's also great for the, for the uh, city of San Antonio and for the surrounding area. I know, I certainly know it's growing. I mean, who, who doesn't think that Texas is growing, right? As big as it is, it's still got to grow, right? Um, oh, yeah. If you look at the population projections, this is the place to be. <laughs> you know, you mentioned how you attended the Walter Cronkite School at ASU. Well, I never met him personally, but I got a feeling that he would have wanted that media connects people more than it divides, the media, in many ways, a lot of the media that we're we're consuming is not connecting us. We we say that we're friends on Facebook, but are we friends in life? What what can people do to learn more about your platform and 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 obviously read more about the San Antonio Report and all the things that you're up to nowadays? Yeah, um, you can go to sanantoniorreport.org and you can see all the stories that we've done. You know, today, yesterday, the past week. Um, we also are. Uh, working on a um, kind of more evergreen section of the site, which is going to have more like lifestyle content to help people actually plug into their community differently, understand their community more. Um, so yeah, be looking for what we're doing. Uh, you can find us on on Twitter too, or SA Report, um, just SA Report. Um, and I'm Lee Munsell, L-E-I-G-H-M-U-N-S-I-L. You can find me on Twitter and just about anywhere you're on the internet. I'm extremely online. Sounds great. I'll put those links down in the show notes below for people to check them out. But Lee, again, thank you so much for your time. And uh, I really know I, I'm very confident that you're going to be able to go to a lot of places, uh, uh, not uh, not just San Antonio, but perhaps for, perhaps around the country. Um, I think this is a really important time, as you were saying, you know, the time is now. So, so thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed talking to you. So thanks. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure, once again, to subscribe to our podcast to get the latest notifications about new episodes. Have a great rest of your day and rest of your week. And remember, a day in America is always better when we are with our friends and fellow citizens.